There's more pain there than comfort. There's more sorrow there than joy. It is one of the most challenging seasons of life. And if there was ever a book in the Bible that dealt with the winner of the soul, it is the book of Job. That book opens with Job living in the land of us, and Job is a righteous man. He's a servant of God who honors God in everything that he does. He's a tremendously blessed man because of his relationship with God. But six verses into the book, everything changes. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Maybe it was a morning, a Monday morning. And the Bible says that Satan came also among them. Sounds a lot like a Monday morning to me. And in the exchange that followed when Satan came with the sons of God before the throne of the Lord, Satan challenged God about Job's righteousness. Essentially, Satan called Job's motivation for serving God into question. He accused Job of loving God the same way that little children love Santa Claus. He told God, if you'll turn off the fountains of blessing from your life, from his life, if you'll, if you'll cut off the goodness, if you'll cut off the blessings that you give to him, Job will turn his back on you. He's only in this thing for what he gets out of you, and you've been really good to Job. And so what follows is a, a living testimony, a real-life parable of sorts where God allows Satan to test the depths of Job's devotion to God. And Job is unwittingly thrust into the winter of the soul. First, Job loses all of his possessions, all of his wealth. Everything that Job has that has any material value is taken from him in a, a very short span of time in a continuous procession of tragedies that come one upon the heels of the other, one right after the next. Then as if it's not enough to lose everything of any earthly value that Job has, he loses all of his children. The thing about Job is that even in those devastating circumstances, he continued to worship God. Through all the tragedy that he endured, he never faltered in his devotion to God. So the Bible says that Satan returned to the presence of God, and, and he tells the Lord, you know, you've kept my hand back from Job's life. You've not allowed me to touch him physically, and, and no man values anything more than he values his life. And he challenges God to lift the hedge of protection that shelters Job's physical body from the touch of Satan. And once again, God consents. And as Job's body is plagued with boils from the top of his head, the Bible says, to the, the soles of his feet, Job becomes absolutely miserable. He has lost everything. 
Everything that ever mattered in his life is gone. His, his possessions, his, all of his worldly goods, his, his children, even his wife has turned her back on him and said, Job, you might as well curse the Lord and die. And now he loses his health. Talk about the winner of the soul. The season that Job was going through was bitter. It was cold. It was lonely. It was hopeless. It was as bad as it could possibly be. A lot of people think that the purpose of the book of Job is to ask this question. Where is God when we suffer? Where is God when we go through that season of winter? Where is God whenever our soul can't find any answers and when everything fails us? But that's not really the question that the book of Job attempts to answer at all. The key question in, in the book of Job is actually the question that was asked by Satan in Job 1 and 9 when he said to God, Does Job fear God for nothing? Is Job serving you for nothing? The word fear has to do with reverence and respect not terror, not that he's abjectly afraid of God, but that he reveres God. He worships God. The question is, does Job worship God for nothing? To put it in the terms that Satan was presenting to God, he was saying, is is Job's devotion to you based on the blessings that he gets from you? In other words, if there is nothing... Will Job still worship you? If there is no blessing to it, if there is no benefit to it, if there is no good in it, if there is no uh, measurable benefit to worshiping God, will Job still worship you? What if you stopped blessing him? What if you took away all of his blessings? What if you forced Job into the winter of the soul? Is there any benefit from worshiping God when there is no tangible blessing in return? Is there any benefit from worshiping God when there is no answer to your prayers? When the sickness doesn't go away? When the financial blessings do not come? When the miracle that you hunger for never materializes. Is there any blessing to serving God when there is nothing in return? Job is the unwitting participant in a dynamic demonstration of the benefits of serving God where there seems to be no measurable advantage to worshiping God. If you read the book of Job, and I'm not going to take the time tonight to preach entirely through the book of Job, but if you read it, you will discover that it finally becomes more than Job can bear in silence. And even though he never sins, and he never really ceases to worship God, he does erupt in a cry of anguish, much like the cry that begins the Monday morning psalm. Frustration, bitterness, hurt, confusion, even anger at God. Finally, those things come tumbling out 
in his words to God. And Job challenges God in the 23rd chapter of Job. And he says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I, that I might come even before his seat. I, I would present my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. Job has cried out to God for 23 chapters from the bottom of his heart in anguish and despair. And the main question is why? If you would allow me to paraphrase the whole book of Job, to wrap it up in one phrase that sums up Job's cry, it would be the first verse of the Monday morning psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? And if we were honest with each other tonight, we'd all have to admit that we have felt that way from time to time. We've been in that place. We understand what it is to be in that season of winter of the soul, that place where you can't find any answers and you can't find any comfort and you can't find any solitude and everything you touch seems to fall apart and there doesn't seem to be any comfort. And you've lifted your voice to heaven and you've cried from the bottom of your heart. Why? Why have you forsaken me? Why do you not hear my cry? Why do you seem to be so far from me? Why is it that your helping hand, I can't seem to find it anywhere I turn? Why is it, Lord, I've been faithful to you. I've been good to you. I've served you, God. I've walked after you all of these years. Uh, Why is it that I find myself in this place? Finally, In the 38th chapter, the Lord answers Job out of the middle of a whirlwind. I find it interesting that in the middle of Job's winter, God answers him out of a storm. Comes to him wrapped up in a whirlwind. But even then, even when God begins to answer Job, even when God begins to speak to Job, he doesn't really answer the question. As a matter of fact, God never tells Job why. He never tells Job what happened in the sixth verse of the first chapter. He never relates to Job the reason why Job is going through what he's going through. Job's experience like the experience of Jesus on the cross, is indicative of the human condition. And I believe the reason why God never tells Job why is because God doesn't owe you an explanation. God doesn't owe you understanding. God doesn't have to give you the kind of clarity that Job wants. God doesn't have to tell you why. Because the fundamental question here is not why. The fundamental question is, will you worship God when there is nothing, when there is silence, when there is no understanding of why? You see, it's easy to worship God when you understand why. It's easy to worship God when you get that sense of clarity and you can see why you're going through what you're going through. That wasn't the question. 
The question was, does Job worship God for nothing? What if there's only silence? What if there never comes an answer? What if there's never any clarity? What if God never gives you the divine direction that you think you so desperately need? What if he never explains to you why? Will you still serve him? Will you still worship him? Will you still follow him? What if there are never any benefits? Instead of telling Job why, God proceeds to reveal his character to Job. And I, there's so much context and I can't touch it all. I'm going to pull out a specific portion and kind of make the example that speaks to the rest of the book. In one passage in, the, I believe, the 38th chapter, God speaks to Job and he asks him, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain or makes a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland, And make the wasteland sprout with grass. Now I'm sure that the poetic symmetry of that in the original Hebrew was much more obvious. It didn't sound as poetic to me as it probably sounded to Job. But the point that God was making was very obvious to Job. You see, Job lived in a climate where life depended on rainfall. You had to have water. It was a dry and a thirsty land, and water was a precious commodity. And the important thing here and what God said back to Job is that Job would never, nobody in Job's day and age would ever waste water. So God asked Job, why would God water a land where nobody lives? Why would God waste that precious life-giving rainfall on a desolate desert land where nobody will ever benefit from it, where nobody is ever going to give him the praise for it, where nobody is ever going to recognize the goodness of God that rained down on the desert. That question serves to emphasize the good nature of God. He's good all the time. He's good no matter whether he gets praise or not. He gives his blessings, and it doesn't matter what he gets back in return. He even pours out his blessing on the desolate land where nobody's even there to notice that he did it. God's goodness, is it doesn't have any boundaries. It doesn't have anything that it relies on. He's not dependent on praise to bless you. He's good all the time. He gives and he blesses just because he enjoys giving and blessing. And he even goes so far as to pour out his blessings in places and times where nobody's even there to appreciate the work that he has done. You see, Job wants to know why God would allow the winter season, a season of tragedy and trial, to grip the life of a faithful servant of God? Why would God allow bad things to happen to a good person? 
And God's response is simple. He allows good things to happen to bad people. He allows his blessings to be poured out when there isn't anyone there to thank him for it. And contained within the mystic poetry of the the book of Job, nestled among the behemoths and the wild goats and the leviathans, there is a subtle but powerful truth that the blessings of God are not tied to our faithfulness to God. The blessings of God do not come to us just because we obey Him and serve Him and walk with Him. Good things happen to bad people too. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. Everyone is subject to time and circumstance and every person goes through the seasons of life. All of us. Everyone. That's the point of the book of Job. Every man, woman, or child who ever lives will endure the cyclical nature of life. We all go through seasons. We all experience ups and downs. We all go through the good times and the bad. Tragedy and triumph come hand in hand. Good times and bad times, they make up the fabric of our existence. And where there's a spring, there will always be a summer. And where there's an autumn, there will always be a winter. It is as certain as the rising of the sun. The lesson that Job is to learn, and the lesson that everybody under the sound of my voice needs to grasp this evening, is that the ultimate benefit of worshiping God does not reside in the benefits that come from worshiping God. The ultimate benefit of serving God is God all by himself. It's God. He is our strength. He is our joy. He is our constant friend in time of trouble. He is our help. He is our way maker. He is the one that that gives us a sense of confidence and peace. But when there are no answers, when there is no solution, whenever everywhere you turn you can't find uh, uh, what you ought to do next or the next step you ought to take or when the, the cold wind of winter blows across your soul, He is the God that is enough when there is nothing else. The real benefit of serving Him is Him. It's not the blessings. It's not all the good gifts. It's not all the wonderful things. If all of that is stripped away, the question is, will you worship Him for nothing? The message that I want you to grasp this evening is that when you go through the winter season of the soul, when you find yourself in that place where there are no easy answers, and it seems as if God has ignored your cry for help, remember this. Winter is a season. And the wonderful thing about seasons is they change. The icy winter wind may usher in unimaginable trouble and despair in your life. But by its very existence, it testifies to the fact that the season is going to change. 
and spring is going to come. That's not to say that winter is not difficult. That's not to say that winter does not try your soul. But somebody needs to know in this place tonight that the season that you are in is not permanent. It is not final. It is not finished. It is not done. If you will keep trusting God, if you will keep walking with Him, if you will keep your confidence in the Lord, even when there are no answers to the question why, even when there are no discernible benefits of serving Him, sooner or later the season is going to change. Weeping, the scripture says, endures for a season, but joy comes in the morning. I want somebody in this place this evening to know that if you'll hang in there, it may be winter now, but joy is coming out. If you'll hang in there, you may not have any answers now. You, it may not make sense now. You may not be able to figure it out now. It may be nothing but anguish and heartache and trouble and trial, and you may not be able to get God to tell you why, but if you'll be faithful, if you'll stand in there, if you'll keep worshiping Him, I can promise you this, He is enough. And the season is going to change. Eventually, Job's suffering ended. Eventually, God's blessing returned. Job never got an explanation from God. He never had the benefit of understanding why. But he also never faltered in his faith that God was able to take care of him. And in the end, Job would testify. In the very last chapter of the book of Job, that through it all, through the pain and the suffering, through the terrible winter of the soul, that he caught a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God. You read it for yourself. Job said, I have seen you. I saw God. In the middle of my winter. When the blessings were gone. When the benefits were stripped away. When there was nothing left but the haunting question. Why hast thou forsaken me? In an unwavering faith uh, that would not let go. That's when I saw God. Job saw God in the middle of his winter. He said before this I'd only heard of you. Before this, I only knew what I had read or what others told me. But now, mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Now, I've caught a glimpse of your majesty. I come to this house tonight to tell somebody in this place that there's something about the winter of the soul that clarifies our vision, that causes us to become acutely aware of God. When there is no tangible benefit to serving God, that's when we realize that the true benefit is God all by himself. When there is no answer, when there never comes an answer, that's when we realize I can serve him without answers to my questions. I can serve him without clarity into the reasons why. I can serve him without knowing what the next step is. I can serve him because he is my God. 
and he's worthy of my praise. If he never does another good thing for me, if he never blesses me again in my life, I can still serve him because he alone, all by himself, he is the benefit of my worship. You see, that's the great thing about the Monday morning psalm. What begins with a cry of anguish ends in a song of praise. Monday morning begins with the haunting feeling that God has abandoned me in the middle of my trial, that I have been forsaken, that God is far away from me. He's far from helping me, that He doesn't hear me when I call out to Him. But the great thing about Monday is that it's not permanent. The great thing about Monday is it's not so far from Friday. And after 21 verses of gloom and despair, the Monday morning psalm erupts into a song of praise. And the psalmist says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. It goes on to say in the 24th verse, For he hath not despised nor abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. He may not have answered me, but he heard me. He may not have given me the reason why, But he heard me. He may not have told me everything I wanted to know, but he was there. He heard my cry. What a change from verse 1 to verse 24. A remarkable turn of events. Uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Turns into, I will praise him because when I cried to him, he heard me. Fear gives way to praise. Uh, The sorrow gives way to joy. Tragedy turns into triumph and despair becomes delight as the psalmist recognizes that the best thing about Monday morning is the fact that in a few short hours, it won't be Monday anymore. And God is going to be there. He's going to take care of me. I come to this pulpit this evening to encourage someone that the season that you're going through in your life is not permanent. I'm not taking anything away from how difficult it may be. I'm not taking anything away from how serious it is. I just want you to know this isn't the finish line. This isn't where it ends. The season is going to change. None of us wants to go through the winter of the soul. None of us wants to endure that trying season of our life, that place where we question our very existence. That's what Job did, said it had been better off if I'd never been born. None of us wants to endure another Monday morning. But something happens on Monday morning that can't happen anywhere else. Something happens in the winter of the soul that doesn't happen under any other set of circumstances. When the blessings are stripped away, when we're pushed out of our comfort zone into the crucible of trial and trouble, that's when we finally see the Lord for who He really is. 
it's easy to praise him when he's blessing you. It's easy to worship him when you're up on the mountain and everything's going right. But it's when you're down in the valley. When the darkness closes in. When the questions haunt your soul. When you can't sleep at night because you can't find an answer to the thing that troubles you. That's when you learn what it really is. To serve him. To worship him. To know him. That's when you see him. The old songwriter said, He is not just the Lord of the good times, but He's Lord of the bad times. He's not just God on the mountain, He's God in the valley. When things go wrong, He's the one who makes them right. You can't learn that unless you go through the winter of the soul. You can't know that unless you've been in that place where you did not know where to turn. You'll never know how sweet it is to trust in him until you first stand in the place where you have to trust in him. You'll never have the confidence that you can walk by faith and not by sight until everything that you see is taken away. And you have to take your next step by faith. That's where we grow. That's where we learn. That's where we see Jesus for who he really is. When he doesn't answer my prayer. And I discover that his presence alone is answer enough to my prayer. When he doesn't take the storm away. And I discover that his presence alone. Is enough to calm my soul. Somewhere in the middle of my anguish. Somewhere in the middle of my despair. I see him. And you know what happens when you see him? A song of praise. Breaks forth. You can't really see him. Without praising him. You can't really catch a glimpse of his glory. Without worshiping him. I understand tonight that some of you are in difficult places. I understand that there are things going on that are beyond the scope and capacity of my understanding. I don't know the full breadth and width and depth of the problems and the circumstances that you face. But I I want you to know in this place tonight that you serve a God that is more than enough all by himself. And I just believe that this evening there's an anointing of the Holy Ghost that is flowing through this place uh, that would turn your cry of anguish uh, into a song of praise uh, because that's what this season of your life is about. That's what the winter is about. It's about bringing you to the place where you worship Him for nothing. Think about it. For nothing. When was the last time you worshipped him? For nothing. So often our worship is linked to the blessings. We worship him for the promotion. We worship him for the material things. We worship him because he kept his hand on my boys. We worship him because of the things that we see and understand. 
When was the last time you worshipped him for nothing? You want to know how you get through the winter of the soul? You worship him when there's nothing. Nothing. When there's no other reason than just who he is. When you stand in the presence of God, you tell him, you are enough. You are. If I don't get the financial miracle that I need, you're enough, God. If I don't get the healing that I so desire, you're enough, God. If I don't get the clarity that I long for, you are enough. Would you stand with me tonight? I know it seems to be an odd way to end a message on the winter of the soul. But I believe winter is all about worship. Winter is all about worship. And the question is will you worship him for nothing?